Welcome to Mavericks. I'm Joey Garcia, and in today's episode, we'll be speaking to one of the most brilliant minds in DeFi. He's advised some of the world's biggest organizations on core trading system designs and blockchain infrastructure, and he's the co-founder of the Vega Protocol. He's an innovator and a maverick. It's Barney Mannerings. This is Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. Barney, morning, sir. Awesome to, to have you here today. Uh, great um, to be here. Barney, you, you know, I think it might be helpful for people listening for you to just give something of a bit of your background and in, 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 in how you got into this sort of universe, this new developing space and everything else. What, what, what sort of brought you into it in the first place? Sure. Um, so I was a um, you know, computer scientist, I guess, at university. Um, and back then, I guess we had the like sort of crypto wars when it was sort of cryptography rather than cryptocurrency. And we were you know, thinking about sort of privacy and, and encryption and, and all of those things. And so I was sort of interested in that general sphere of things and, and in sort of you know, the sort of freedom of the internet and, and sort of all of those things really quite early on. Um, but I ended up going into sort of technology in traditional finance, working in capital markets, building trading systems, working as a consultant, working with clients like London Stock Exchange and you know, major investment banks and, and that sort of that sort of thing. Um, and while I was doing that, I also ended up uh, getting interested in Bitcoin reasonably early. I did you know, a really sort of terrifyingly small amount of mining, but enough to kind of get into it um, you know, on, a, on a computer in sort of 2013 and then uh, you know, did a bit of early stuff with Ethereum around the sort of pre-sale and, and the early betas as well. Uh, so sort of had been dipping my toe technically. Um, and then I, I sort of became more and more disillusioned with kind of, I guess, my career in sort of big financial companies, but also with kind of the way markets were structured and the way all of that stuff worked. And that sort of dovetailed with me learning about crypto. And then... Uh, but what do you mean by disillusioned, just out of interest? Um, what was the... Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, the more you see this stuff, the more it works kind of the opposite of, um, say, tech and, and a lot of other types of business where, you know, whether it's a you know, fairly sort of boring local business or whether it's a new technology company, it's pretty easy to set up. There are no barriers to entry. Um, people can innovate very fast and, you know, reasonably level playing field. Um, whereas in finance, you kind of between, you know, the regulatory moats, between the size of companies, between the power they hold, the interconnections and systems and gatekeepers, uh, the whole thing was sort of geared to innovation being unable to happen outside of big companies. And that makes it happen very, very slowly. Uh, and I was more interested in, I guess, innovating in, in markets and products and the offering and, and improving the access and the products for, for everyone than I was in sort of entrenching the power and profits of big companies. And so you know, that, that just started to grate on me and also maybe limit my ability to do things that I thought were, were good and, and interesting to do. Let me ask you something else around that, because when I hear you say that, I mean, what about the, those financial institutions or incumbents or large platforms? I mean, that have innovated. H haven't they developed? I mean, they go back to the days of old or whatever it was, and you know, whatever. Some of them didn't even want internet banking. Um, they move. You know, settlement systems have improved. Is, is it a question of them still being too far behind or too conservative or just generally? Think, um, well, there's there's a few things. The first first is that they. They innovate only when it's useful to them or mm -hmm. when they're forced to. Um, sometimes they get forced to by a government, you know. So in the UK, we have faster payments, whereas in America, they don't. And that's entirely because effectively, like, you know, the sort of 
jurisdiction around it kind of forced that sort of instant payment solution on on the the banking sector. Um, and you mentioned things like you know, internet banking. Yeah, it turned up, but sort of only because eventually it became necessary to compete and very very slowly. Uh, you know, I remember having an account with HSBC, and you basically had to access the data in your internet banking as if it was paper statements. And they were like, oh, you can't search it because it's basically just PDFs. And you know, it was kind of really terrible for ages. And so firstly, those things just happened slowly and only when forced, really. Um, and then secondly, as I said, like you know, some of the innovations might disrupt the business model. If you look at the innovations of the internet and how they have both helped, say, newspapers and broadcasters, but also disrupted them and challenged them by bringing new forms of content and making everyone you know, to some extent, a sort of citizen journalist or a you know, reporter of facts or you know, sharer of mm. content. Um, that dis- that kind of disruption couldn't be imagined as an outcome of the innovation that's allowed to happen in finance. Really, that kind of disruption is kind of impossible because the innovation only happens within those organisations, and and it would challenge them. And you know, mm. that's where crypto comes in and, and, and blockchain because actually, by removing, you know, by creating something that exists without a Sort of centralized entity controlling it by creating something that works on this sort of distributed ledger that everyone agrees with, you kind of create the space for this permissionless innovation, and that's uh, that's what drew me initially to the space. And what what what, what was the what was the difference you saw moving from you mentioned the London Stock Exchange or whatever it might be, moving to you know a startup? I mean, the the, the it's, is it how different an environment was it to? Get into something as a founder, as a as a as a as an as a maverick, uh, if you like. Um, you know, what what were the main differences yeah, I mean, you experienced? It's, um, it's it's very different um, in that in in sort of a couple of ways. And the first one is obviously, um, and I just sort of experienced this as being a sort of receiver of it when I you know, worked for a consultancy while while it was relatively small and had a sort of a founder who was still present. You you could sort of feel the kind of energy and direction that comes from a sort of founder-led business rather than a you know, committee-led or shareholder-led business. Mm. Um, and that's, that's really good. And, and, and to be on the other side of that, actually you know, doing some of the leading along, alongside Ramsey and, and actually you know, making those things happen has been incredibly eye-opening and, and great in terms of the ability to execute and, and drive things in a direction that you think is positive. Um, and then the other difference is, um, is on the... The other side, you realize how much benefit you get from a big company's like support network. Like, you, know, you want finance done, there are people who do finance. You want recruitment done, there are people who do that. Uh, when there are like six of you in a company and, and you're one of the founders, like you basically um, have no one to do that. You have to do it all. So you, know, you both have this kind of great mm-hmm. ability to do anything, but then you're incredibly constrained by having to sort of fairly ruthlessly prioritize. Like I've never before been in a situation where actually the things that I would say are essential on my to-do list are impossible to do all of. Like, you know, I've been in situations where I have to cut some stuff, but you get someone else to do it, or you say, like, if you really want this, you're going to have to reprioritize, and it doesn't matter. Whereas in a startup, it's like all of these things are essential, and I can do a third of them. Yeah, my God. I can, yeah, <laughs> I can only... Uh, and let me ask you something else, um, Barney. I mean, you're, when you talk about, um, again, that sort of background, or like, call it transition from one existing... You know, financial system, financial services universe that you knew very well to this new universe. Um, how much of that uh, was triggered around? I don't know the two thousand eight crisis or whatever it might be, and and how much how much belief is there that this whole new concept of 
disintermediation, if you like. So moving away from the intermediary being the bank or broker or whatever it might be to this network or this piece of code or this uh, blockchain. What, what, what's the, what, what were the triggers to, to move things in that way? Well, um, the you know the two thousand and eight crisis triggered it things in a in a maybe a roundabout way for me, which is to say, the outcome of the two thousand and eight crisis was a bunch of rules and a bunch of changes of attitude in the city, which effectively meant that even the you know the trading desks that actually could be quite innovative at times and had you know developers and traders and people going out after creating products and doing some you know fairly maverick things, I guess, and, and some of them turned out not to be. Mm-hmm. the greatest of ideas, but that kind of all got shut down both by cost reduction, new regulation, new cautiousness, yeah, the smaller banks often being acquired in that crisis by bigger banks who were less, more risk-averse. Um, and so the amount of innovation you could do and the amount of sort of enjoyment you could get out of you know, building new things and stuff was actually decreasing pretty rapidly and you really had the option of going to like fintech and startups or maybe go to a hedge fund who where where the sort of yeah. the traders who were doing more interesting stuff ended up sort of fleeing to um, so I'm not sure it actually changed what was happening you just moved it really but uh, yeah so that that was a big a big trigger for me personally in terms of like my enjoyment of my job but then you know really in terms of making me think about these things there was the aspect of stuff that's not on chain and is very very opaque was obviously a big risk factor for the, the crisis and having this sort of more deterministic world where everything was definitely you know, auditable on chain was, was, was something that seemed like a very good idea. So on that side, it was good. But, but on the other side, you know, the option to have the same kind of freedom that the information enjoys on the internet for, you know, for finance um, was something that was sort of you know, ultimately going to be appealing to me regardless. Hmm. And, and and going, I mean, on from that, I suppose, and, and part of the sort of fundamentals around you, Vega, et cetera, um, are, are based around this concept of decentralization. What, what, and many people have many different interpretations of that, um, many different interpretations. So what, what, if, if, if I was to put it to you to, you know, describe the concept of decentralization in as relatively simple terms as you can, what, how, would you, how would you describe that? That's a good, good question. Um, I think... It's about another word for it could be democratization in a way, which is to say it is useful in my view if you know everyone who might want to start a business and everyone who might want to do something has access to a fairly level playing field and the same kind of tools. So you know right now on the internet, I can design a clothing product, I can talk to some people in China, I can mm. pay someone to build some promotional stuff, promote it on Instagram, sell it on Shopify and create a business selling clothing like you know in a few months if that's my passion if i had an idea you know to improve say you know how uh, you know small businesses hedge currency risk uh, and i had an idea for a new product or a new way of selling that product that was going to be helpful to them and offer them a service that was better value and, and more attuned to their, their needs than what currently exists there would be no way for me to do that like the only way would be for me to basically join a bank wait 15 years until i was senior enough hopefully and then slowly pound away at the internal processes until maybe I could launch this. And you know, that, that to me is a huge wasted opportunity because uh, we have all these sort of tools and, of finance, whether it's like you know, order books and exchanges or whether it's derivatives or other things. And all of these tools are wielded by a tiny number of people who don't understand most of everyone's problems. And even when they are using them to solve people's problems, they're mostly interested in their own enrichment. Um, 
And so it just seems like a hugely wasted opportunity. And decentralization really is saying, give everyone those tools, give them a level playing field to go and build on, and actually find out how what happens when people can permissionlessly innovate. Permissionlessly innovate. And, and what, what do you think the restrictions are around like this becoming the common sort of everyday concept of anyone being able to develop anything that they think about? I mean, this question of trust, right? So the trust in the intermediary being now the trust in this network, is that a restrictive factor? Or do you think that's something that people get to become more and more familiar with and understand it better? Or the security levels will become more comforting? What, 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 are, the, what are the blockers? Yeah, I think it is restrictive, and I, but I think it's in, in a way it's kind of good because um, like any new technology, there will be things that don't work well and things that are not super easy to use. And you know, I think it was Vitalik um, you know, from Ethereum who sort of recently said, actually, it's kind of good that like the biggest institutions and, and the most risk-averse people are not piling in right now in a big way because infrastructure-wise and in terms of like proving things out and giving having a track record of security and robustness and even throughput and capacity, we're not yet there. We have the research to sort of demonstrate that we can go there. But you know, even with things like Vega, you know, Vega is just coming up to launching the first MVP of a thing that in you know two, three, four, five years might start to look like something that everyone can can use and, and truly level that playing field. So it's kind of it is restrictive um, that getting those things on and some of it is building the infrastructure and proving it and showing it can be secure. And some of it is things like user experience, but also some of it is just um, kind of waves of adoption. Like, you know, the, I remember when people kind of said, oh man, email is so clunky, no one will ever use it or whatever. Mm. And part of it was the user experience got easier, but part of it was because everyone was using it, it was necessary to learn a few concepts like email addresses and whatever. And you kind of, everyone went through that effort and now everyone thinks email is easy. And I think once you both improve the experience, demonstrate the robustness, and kind of get a critical mass where people have to start learning a few new concepts and they're presented to them in the right way. Um, you know, that, will, that, will, that will ease off, that friction will be, be removed. But you know, right now it is there, but I don't think it's a, a huge issue. I, I've spoken to lots of people and I'm really curious to see what you think. Um, and sometimes when you speak to people in the, let's just call it DeFi universe, um, they, they use a lot of the same terminology and same themes. I mean, sometimes it's very extreme, so like no institutions are ever going to exist anymore and governments aren't going to exist in a year, bit, bit sort of quite extreme. Um, the, the more common theme is around inclusion, so financial inclusion, and that's also a general theme, access to these services from everywhere around the world. But, I mean, would you agree that the restrictive factors to that today are, is it, is it accessibility? Is it... Um, usability and pure accessibility restrictions. It's pretty freaking easy to go into Amazon and do whatever it is, but gain access to some protocols or access points. It's not that simple for the average guy on the street. I think, I think some of it is actually like both abstraction layers and terminology. So I'll, I'll sort of explain both those. Like one is early on in the internet, you interacted with protocols much more directly than you do now. You mm. kind of knew you were using HTTP or Usenet or SMTP, all these like obscure protocols. You knew you were kind of nerdy, you knew what programs could interact with them. And then everything sort of became, this is like I poke a button and, and I get messages and I don't even really know what's happening under the ground anymore. And that for most people is a good thing. Like the protocols are still there. If you want to dig in as a nerd, you can go look at all the data and the protocols and you can do all the same stuff, but most people don't think about it. And we're not there yet, both in terms of building the layers on top of that to abstract them away, but also 
we're still a bit obsessed in the space with you know calling things NFTs and tokens and protocols, and that's good for building the abstraction layers, but it's bad for general adoption. And um, Reddit, I think, recently have started doing mm. kind of NFT stuff, but they yeah. don't call them NFTs; they call them collectibles, and they don't talk about wallets. But actually, you can go find these things, I think, on OpenSea. So it's like it's there, but Reddit have sensibly just stopped talking about crypto and started saying, "Hey, you can collect some digital art," and people are much more interested in doing that than they are in learning terminology in general. Mm. But are we are we anywhere near the question at the moment? That's a good example, a Reddit one, but in terms of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, sort of parity or uh, equivalence of you know the internet of the old world and the Web3 of the new world. We're getting closer, I think. Um, you know, some of it will probably come with more regulatory clarity. Um, the, one of the interesting things is around just because you can do everything, you know, just because you can be like pseudonymous and completely private and never use any intermediaries, doesn't necessarily mean everyone will. Like it's, it's useful for humanity that that exists, that people kind of have sort of sovereignty over their own money in the same way that it's useful that pe people have the right to you know, freedom of association and freedom of expression. It's useful that I can come and meet you somewhere without a secret police following me, and it's useful that we can talk about anything we want without fear of being you know, beaten up by the government. And it would be useful if we had the same sort of freedoms and rights over our money, but most people probably won't go to those extremes. Most people will probably use something that looks like a bank and could be a could be a current bank, could be one of the sort of new challenger banks, or it could even be, you know, exchanges like Binance. I think they're positioning themselves to be like the sort of proto banks of the future. And that will combine custodial type services and, you know, intermediary type services where they provide benefit to you in exchange for money or in exchange for whatever value they get. But it'll also combine aspects of the sorts of sovereignty and crypto wallets and keys and you know your ability to take those things away from them and bring them somewhere else. So you're sort of going to get this hybrid model, I think. And most people will probably be totally fine with you know, some company putting a nice veneer on something and, and helping them out. Hmm. And, and that, that, that and that sort of um, I'm, I'm really interested in a couple of things you said. One there or the previous point, you use the term democratization. Um, when you were talking about decentralization as a, as, as a concept. And I know I've heard you use the expression before, permissionless uh, innovation as a concept. So if I think of all of that and everyone talks about Web3 and all of these things, how, how in what context did you look at the Vega model specifically or the idea of let's just use the term derivatives um, or, or talk a little bit about derivatives as a, as a concept. I mean, most people, some people will be very familiar, others maybe less. Sure, so there's a, a couple of things to unpack there. Um, firstly, you know, derivatives, is, in a very brief term, are um, they're basically financial instruments, products, um, in many cases, in the traditional world at least, they're you know, sort of contracts, so actually they're done, they're, they're created usually in the traditional world by signing a contract with someone. And the reason is because the the value you get is not actually the value of holding a thing, it's based on some rules. So, you know, if I buy a ton of grain, I have a ton of grain, it has some value, that value will go up and down with the market and eventually the grain will, you know, probably rot and it'll go to zero. And those things are sort of related to the fact that I have a ton of grain in a warehouse somewhere. Um, in a derivative, I can have, I can write a contract with you or create a derivative that says, 
this will be, the price of this will be the square root of the price of a summer brain. If we wanted to do that, we could do that. We'd sign, sign a contract, or if it was on-chain, we would just create the, the code, because you would, instead of using a, a contract, you'd just use, have some code, and you basically give the code some money to look after as um, like collateral, and then the code would uh, you know, move the money between us, depending on the value of the square root of the cost of this grain. And the, you know, the, the key point there is derivative. You know, the square root of the cost of the grain is a derivative of you know, it, it's derivative of the actual cost of the grain. Uh, but you can create very interesting derivatives. So you can have like options which says, um, instead of like, I've actually definitely bought a ton of grain, you have like, well, if I want to, in six months time, I can buy a ton of grain for $1,000 from you. And if I buy that option from you, then you have to sell me that grain for $1,000 if I want it in six months time. But if I don't want it, I don't have to use that. And that option has some value. And you can do futures, which is just, I will definitely buy it from you in this time. And there are many, many types, obviously, because it's just literally some rules and formulas. You can make any level of complexity you want. And you can use these things to hedge risks. You can use these things to express opinions about macroeconomics. So very, very powerful tools. Um, but those things, Bunny, obviously already exist. I mean, the concepts of an option or future. So what's the vega angle to that yeah, in this so, sort of concept? So the vega of... angle in terms of you know, permissionless innovation and democratization. Um, there's two parts of the vega angle. Firstly is what we wanted to do was say, um, sure, you have a blockchain like Ethereum where technically I can code up a derivative. You go check out a derivatives protocol, every different product, you know, thousands of lines of code, each one re-implements many of the same concepts. Most of them get hacked because they're all do doing the same thing again and again. So you know, if you have 100 derivatives protocols in Ethereum all doing the same thing, then every one of those has the potential to have a bug. And even if one of them gets hacked and they fix that bug, the others maybe don't get to fix it because their code is different. Um, so one of the things that, that Vega wanted to do was to say, we want to give people the toolkit so that they don't have to do everything from scratch. They've got the building blocks and tools. And actually the sort of my time in in sort of the traditional finance world really helped there because when you go look at these giant banks, what you'll find is they have these toolkits. They have these primitives. They have libraries of code, they have you know risk models, they have financial models, they have everything they need so that when they want to make a new product, they glue some bits together, make some spreadsheets, pass it around a bit, mm. talk in a committee, and then upload it to some server somewhere, and now they've got this new product. And you know, I sort of thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we did the same thing? Instead of everyone re-implementing stuff, build this library of stuff um, and, and give it to everyone so that everyone gets to make those products instead of these you know, random groups of people in buildings in London, New York, and Hong Kong, which you know, if you live in the UK or America, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's all right. But if you live in a country that doesn't have a big collection of people in buildings making derivatives, then maybe you're left out of the consideration in terms of how they're designed. So it's the individual's access, basically. Yeah, so giving individuals access. And then the other part of the Vega thing was um, when you look at decentralized finance and exchanges and when you look at financial products and you sort of ask the question like, find an, a user of a financial product you know, in the traditional world, whether it's a business that wants to do hedging, whether it's a trader on a trading floor, whatever, and you sort of say, what features does this product and this market have that are useful to me? And it's kind of like, okay, it has liquidity, has good price determination, so the price is actually reflective of the real market price. Has capital efficiency, which means that, like, if I want to take out a position, like, it's actually efficient to do so in terms of how much money it costs. Um, yeah, it has a bunch of other things. It has the ability for me to trade cheaply in terms of fees. It has the ability for me to be able to trade and not be front run and manipulated. Mm. You look at Ethereum and you say, okay, is it possible to do all these things? And the answer is not really. Mm. Um, people keep sort of hacking their way around it. 
But the real answer is, it's a, it's a bad idea to try and do it on a general purpose chain. And this shouldn't come as too much of a surprise because in traditional finance, the same is true. Like, you know, 70% of websites or something are made on WordPress. I guarantee you 0% of, you know, exchanges, stock exchanges are built with WordPress because general purpose tools for building server-based applications don't work very well for you know, applications that need high performance, that have all these sort of specific requirements. And it's just the, the same is true with blockchain. So we sort of paired it all back and said, okay, given the underlying consensus technology, given the underlying blockchain technology and its constraints, how can we design a system that both gives everyone these tools that banks currently sort of hoard to themselves to create these products, but also um, will be a workable and real-world useful um, sort of place to use these products because there's no point giving everyone these tools and then the output is something that requires a hundred times the margin that would be required on a centralized exchange and you know can only do one transaction a second and also can be front run by everyone like mm. you, know, you sort of built the tools for everyone but you built them in a kind of useless way so you know, we really sort of said with Vega from day one and you know one of the at the moment sort of crypto is crypto trading is often often about speculation right now where the market is but it's also often people who are all in on crypto. Like if I'm going to hold Bitcoin or Ethereum, then maybe while I'm holding it, I'm going to play around with these DeFi products because that's kind of a way to make more money because I already want to be long crypto. If I want to bring someone from the traditional finance ecosystem and say what you should do is get some USDC and take out this you know, DeFi product instead of using a bank, then I have to have products that compete with all of those different features I talked about. And so you know, Vega's whole concept was give everyone these tools to design these products and innovate and come up with whatever new and interesting stuff is going to be Democratization of exactly. finance. Exactly, democratize it, and then make sure the tools can actually do something useful in the end. Hmm. That, that's, uh, that, that's, that's an amazing idea. And, 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 what, and, what, so, and if the incumbents or the platforms that offer these uh, structures and, 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 and products, etc., um, to what extent do you think they're going to start to develop or look at the DeFi markets in slightly different ways? Is the future, I mean, I use this example all the time, but the, the most successful DeFi project out there is the Bitcoin protocol, arguably. The access, access points to BTC at the moment, they're through centralized platforms. So it might be Coinbase or Binance, etc. To what extent do you see that incumbent universe looking at this technology moving forward to, to try to understand or gain access to it, or even sort of generally, well, they can't really replicate it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it depends who you are. So if you're a retail bank and your money is made by people having accounts that you control and you hold their money and you lend it out and offer them products, you probably don't like this and you probably want to avoid embracing it unless you can find a way to embrace it sort of whilst also breaking it so that, um, yeah. you, know, so that you can profit. If you're a investment bank, and you know, when you think of an investment bank, right, what you have is this thin layer of people who generate an absolute ton of value, right? They sit in a trading floor, they pay huge amounts of money, they look at all the world's data, and they generate tons and tons of value trading. And then what you have is a gigantic iceberg of ops and support and risk management. And you know, mm. I think it was RBS had something like 2,600 employees who just prepare, prepare reports for the government. That's all they do. They don't have enough, they don't have good enough automated systems. So huge iceberg of nonsense that no one really wants, um, but they have to have and they haven't worked out how to make it any smaller. So when you talk to someone who runs a trading desk on a bank, they're like, I love this. Please make this happen. I can fire 
ops, I can fire IT, we can have a thin layer of like so building some tools for trading, we can trade the same products we're trading, we can have the same clients we have, we yep. can remove all the costs. So talk to a, bunch, a trading desk, a lot of the time they're like, yeah, please make this happen and make it, find us a way that it can get fast enough and good enough and regulated enough that we can just go and do it. And then when you talk to a retail bank about how, how do you feel about losing your customers to self-custodied wallets, they don't like it at all. So yeah, depends who you are. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, and, and, and I mean, are we still in, and it comes in the same kind of context, uh, the question, do you still think that we're in the sort of early DeFi phase or, you know, people talk a lot the last 12 months of crypto winter, whatever you want to call it. Would you put DeFi in that same context? Are we in a DeFi winter or have there been sort of problems? I mean, you, you know, very well recently, all the, you know, different issues that have appeared in the space, has it affected this as a, as, as a, I think we're, there's a few things. You know, one of them is undoubtedly the the regulatory clarity piece, right? So even if we would be further along in an ideal world, the people who would sort of be you know, reaching out to embrace the tech, the innovation because you know, maybe they're a trading desk and actually would be useful for them are more hands off until they actually understand how they can do it and, and not be at risk. And if you're a small hedge fund. You might go. Actually, we can we can understand this in enough detail to be comfortable that we're not taking too much risk. If you're a big, you know, universal bank, you're going to have a very different set of criteria and a different amount of interest in doing it. But also, doing it has to be a lot more profitable. If you're nearly you know trillion dollars of assets under management, doing it for a bit of fun with a few million dollars is not very useful, and and the risk it, some risk exists. So you're probably not going to move in. So I think you know on the one hand that sort of we're not as early technically as we are in terms of that adoption for that reason. Um, the other thing I think about is there are sort of two, two I, I sort of sometimes think that some of the market for trading and financial products in crypto is a bit of an arbitrage, if you like, against rules that exist on, on traditional stuff. And what I mean is a good number of countries, you know, America included, have some quite draconian rules around things like you know spread betting and online gambling and things like that. Now. You look in the UK, there's a huge amount of demand for those things and people do it all the time. You look in other countries, that doesn't exist. So part of me wonders, like, you know, has, is the adoption, how much of the adoption is people thinking they're using DeFi as finance tools and they're actually, you know, embarking on this new journey of finance? There are definitely some of them, uh, lots of the, the smarter people in the space and the, the commentators are those people. But then you probably have this sort of see, and I see it in WhatsApp groups and I see it among friends of people who, well, interchangeably in the UK, spread bet, gamble, do the same with crypto. And they just want to kind of be in a market. They want to think about markets. They want to look at price charts. They want to play around with some money. And you know, I sort of wonder, like, just tapping into that market, especially in places where there are less options than the UK, um, some of the crypto stuff is there. So, you know, I think maybe the amount of adoption of DeFi in terms of real future of finance stuff is a bit less than it looks like. Um, and actually one of the the challenges we have as a space is to demonstrate that we can build these useful, robust products. So, you know, people like Compound building Compound Treasury and actually going, yeah, rather than wanting 20% and weird stuff and probably blows up next month, what you should be interested in is 4% and won't blow up. You know, I think getting there is going to be a big part of it and we'll actually probably, we're maybe a little bit further behind in adoption than it could look like from the numbers. Mm. Uh, and do you, think, do you think, I mean, in terms of you and Vega and what you're doing um, and this back the same wording I've used before, democratization of these of finance, very, very generally speaking. What, what, what are one or two 
specific use cases for specific, whatever, emerging markets where a new type of derivative could be used in a different kind of way that could be relevant for that market that isn't necessarily accessible today by... Yeah, by... so you know, a good example would be um, weather derivatives, actually. So, um, And one of the reasons is because they're very geographically specific. I mean, it's extremely unuseful if you're in a farm in India or Africa or Russia if you can hedge the weather in you know, Wyoming. It's not, not going to help. Um, so fairly clearly. But um, you know, that's a really good example because um, if you are someone who makes your, makes your living off something that's very dependent on the weather and you know, there's a cold snap and it kills all your crops, you can actually uh, you, know, you can lose that income and you can basically have no, no crops to sell or whatever. Uh, and that's, that's a horrible situation. Most um, you know, farms in the sort of more developed world will use derivatives to hedge those kind of things. They will take out weather derivatives to say, if this happens, then this is going to pay out. And it's effectively you know, hedging or almost insurance in a way. Um, so right now, if you imagine a a region you know, with fairly different weather to other regions that has a small number of farms and is not hugely wealthy and does not have a huge amount of business, how are you going to persuade you know, know JP Morgan to turn up in that region of some country and think about the weather and, and build this product and go and sell it to people? Because the, the, the money is probably not there. You know, they sell hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of, of something, say, in the American market, taking the risk to go and do all that and the effort and then actually having you know, local language marketing and everything doesn't make much sense. But in the democratized world, in the sort of permissionless innovation world, some a farmer's son or daughter can you know, go to university, learn, maybe even online, they learn some computing and programming, they find something like Vega and they find out about weather derivatives and actually they're super simple products. So they go, okay, I can get a source of this weather data, I can build this product in a few days and I can talk to you know, people in the local sort of, you know, guilds or industry unions or whatever and actually say, how, how useful would it be to have this? I can put this thing up on the blockchain basically with zero cost. Uh, I can publicize it you know, around the world and find liquidity and people to take the other side of these trades from all of the hedge funds and all the market makers that exist in the world. Anyone who can have an opinion about the weather can get involved. In fact, even people who don't have much of an opinion and just know how to manage the risk as a market maker provide liquidity, so you have access to this sort of global pool of capital, and now there's this product with a market, and all of these people now have access to have that hedging and insurance that they didn't. And so, so real things like that, and you know, the, the sort of, you always end up with like farming and weather derivatives, everyone understands them, but I guarantee with, to you, every industry, you know, when you, if you run aeroplanes, you're exposed to the price of jet fuel. Right? You don't want to be, you want to be flying aeroplanes, but you are, and you want to hedge it. Every industry has a bunch of things which you sort of, and every business has a bunch of things which you want to be exposed to. You want to take that risk because that's your edge, that's where you make money. And then a bunch of other risks, yeah, whether it's the price of labor, the Ethereum gas price, the cost of fuel, the cost of electricity, um, you know, the cost of shipping things at containers of, full of goods. Like Every business has all these things they're exposed to that they would rather not be and that don't give them any edge to be exposed, they just give them risk. And those businesses like to hedge those things. And in the developed world, they do that all the time manage their risk and have, you know, sort of predictable cash flows. You know? So when you look at big companies in the developed world, you know, they have an earnings miss by like a fraction of a percent and the markets go wild because these things are so predictable usually. Uh, whereas, you know, when you imagine a small business or medium-sized business in, in somewhere without these kind of products, there's all these risks that probably go unhedged. You know, people have a sort of less certain life, you know, lifestyle, less certainty around their economic security. 
uh, and less ability to kind of compete with other businesses and, and manage things in that way. So, you know, every business has all of this and allowing everyone on the ground to see the needs of their business and their area and actually to build those products and create their own businesses doing that is the democratization we're talking about here. And that, that, I mean, it keeps coming at democratization, but, and it's interesting again, because um, when I think or you speak about some of the larger platforms, and JPM could be one example, we, we, we always, we keep, or I keep reading in different countries around you know, very large institutions suddenly wanting to adopt the technology and introduce these effectively permission sort of networks or, or layers. What, what, would you, what would you say are the biggest differences between you know, a JPM created you know, network for particular permission purposes or, um, and what you're doing as an open network? Yeah, I mean, so technically it really depends on how they do it, right? Because on the one hand, you can basically do extremely dumb blockchain things where you pay lip service to the tech and then basically might as well have a database. Yeah, okay. At exactly. that point, you know, it's really debatable whether you're doing anything other than marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then at the other end, there is you know there are permission networks where there are even within the current traditional world or imagining that world maybe you know extends to a long tail of a few more smaller institutions in local places. There are real problems. You know, like settlement is one. Every bank spends billions of dollars on settlement systems. All of them are forty years old and written in COBOL. They'd all love to replace them. You know, I've sat in meetings where there's eleven banks thinking about building a utility settlements platform together so they can all get rid of their old stuff, and they can never agree. You know, they can never agree who owns it, who gets to decide the requirements. Oh, we're putting more money and we do more settlement. Yeah. Arguments and arguments and arguments never goes anywhere. They spend millions of dollars and it never nothing ever happens to them using, say, a blockchain to go, actually, we could have this technology where no one's running it, where it just coordinates settlement between all of us. There, there are use cases you know, like that. So you know, there are some use cases where you get some benefit. But the fundamental thing is, like, even if they to go even further than that and say, okay, we're going to open up this permission chain to new entrants, but you've got to sign up on a web form and you've got to register your project with us and we'll tell you if it's okay. You know, So you've got maybe the opportunity for more innovation, but it's like, very permissioned innovation. It's like if we let you, if it doesn't, if it doesn't eat our business, if it works with the things we want, if it works with even if all of the products you're going to create are in a different jurisdiction, if it works with the requirements of the regulator in our jurisdiction because we own this chain, you know, we will maybe let you innovate on it, but we still kind of hold the keys. And the you know the permissionless innovation thing, the democratization, the decentralization is to go. This will be open source. All of the code will be available to everyone. Everyone can play. And the people building it are literally saying, we're giving you these tools and part of the deal is that we don't get to control what you do with them. You get to choose and you get to innovate. And if you make lots of money doing that, we don't get any of it, it's your money. Hmm. And, that, and, that, and that sort of nicely leads me into another question, which is, um, I mean, to what extent would you say that these platforms or, or large platforms just start starting to use the technology to introduce new levels of uh, efficiency. Um, we can talk about many different digital securities could be maybe the simplest one. Um, that, that that will the adoption of the technology by those incumbents will start to affect the world of DeFi. Or do you think that the openness angle is the key sort of differentiator? It's difficult to say. Um, you know, the adoption of the technology at the moment has been 
so much about like, I mean, you get these ridiculous things where people spend four months on a project and at the end of it they go, we did a trade. And I'm like, what, you issued an ERC-20 token, which is a you know, Ethereum token standard, and then you used a thing that everyone has, but you probably built a version of it yourself in your in-house bank and put it in a, put your logo on it and used a thing that everyone else, everyone has already in the crypto sort of world to basically send this thing you created to someone else. And at the end of it, you contacted a bunch of newspapers and said, we did a billion dollar trade on a blockchain. I'm kind of like, okay, sure. Um, So at the moment, this like adoption is really people fiddling around with stuff that's, that's pretty basic and trying to figure out, I think, what they're actually doing is not adopting it, but trying to figure out how they can fit it into their processes. Like, you know, if we wanted to use this system rather than Swift or rather than whatever, you know, settlement system we currently use and processes where we email each other and whatever, if we wanted to do that, like, how would it look? And, you know, when someone pushed the button, which compliance departments would need to review it? Like, how would that integrate with our system? Like, all of those things, you know, this is important as an institution to know that, so they have to be able to do that. But really, I think they're not so much adopting as demonstrating that they sort of understand how to integrate the technology. What I would be interested to see is if they started saying, at the moment when we do this, we use this horrible central settlement provider who are incredibly expensive and slow, and actually we've all just agreed it's going to be better to issue tokens on the Ethereum blockchain and start doing it. And for if we if someone some group of banks said for this type of product we're just going to do all of this now on chain because we don't see why we should pay these guys this anymore then I would be interested and I sort of look up and go, ah, yeah, this is adoption. This is someone going, solves a problem we've got. And those problems exist. Like There are definitely problems like that to be solved. Someone needs to take the plunge. They're probably still at the like, is it Ethereum? Is it some other chain integration part at this point? But I think at some point someone will do that. Uh, It's just not quite clear where it'll come from and when. I suspect it's more likely to be an emerging or recently emerged market, like, you know, sort of, up-and-coming market with sort of a budding, growing, say, investment banking sector, but one that's less well-developed and sort of entrenched than than what we have in, in the sort of you know, more longer-developed countries, so to speak. And I think somewhere, somewhere like that, you know, something around the edges is going to be pretty horrible to do, potentially, particularly internationally. And at some point, someone's going to start doing it on-chain and everyone will actually say, yeah, now these people have really started using this. Mm. And, and, and let me let me let me ask you one other thing, which is I I, I do think I've, I've talked about this before, but um, in all of that context and in the context of actually de- decentralization, what would you say? And this might be a difficult question. What would you say um, to the point that I've heard raised before? But the more decentralized a, net- a network is, the the more difficult it is to sort of efficiently manage and have it managed, developed and controlled so that it can evolve at the right pace. And the more centralized aspects that there are of protocols, of networks, the more control and the more efficient they are. Is is the, the openness going to be more and more of an inefficiency? And are we going to see more and more centralization or it's a good point and and it, and it actually like if you look at the internet, you know, the internet runs on TCP IP, which is a underlying internet protocol um, and it currently everyone has this IP address that's like most people have an IP address with IPv4 the fourth version of this standard um, and a very long time ago like 20 30 years ago everyone realized we would run out of these addresses and so we needed like IP version 6 I'm not sure what happened to version 5 but version 6 has like many many orders of magnitude more it's like every atom on earth or something could have its own address if needed yeah that kind of craziness but 
that was deemed absolutely essential to allow the internet to scale. And actually what happened was the internet is incredibly decentralized as an underlying network, even if the things built on top of it are not. And so it's been incredibly hard to upgrade. And now like, you know, in some countries with more emerging markets and which own less of these, you know, IPv4 addresses, which have now run out, they use IPv6 more. In other places like here, they use it a lot less. And it's proven incredibly difficult to override the momentum of a decentralized network built on this old technology. And so all of these other sort of technical hacks and band-aids have been put on top of IPv4 to make it work. So now a lot of the time you might not have an IP address on the open internet, you use NAT, which you use basically a gateway where lots of things funnel through one address. There's all these different hacks and horrible things. And you know, a lot of people are like, it would just be better if we could all upgrade, but it's really, really hard. Uh, so that is true. And that that's the same of, you know, all of the same with all these sort of blockchains. So it, it is definitely true. I think there are ways there are ways to work around some of it. So one of the things you sort of see is early on there was kind of a maximalist model of one chain will win and now we yeah. kind of have the internet of blockchains and yeah. you know, IBC and all these kind of protocols. And so I think one thing to do is to say actually the internet is a layer everyone has to agree on. We all have to use IPv4 or V6 and if our computers can't talk to each other, we end up with splitting into two internets. That doesn't necessarily, and actually you know, IPv4 and 6 can actually translate over each other as well, so there's a bit of that crosstalk. That doesn't necessarily have to happen with blockchains. Like Vega is a chain, Vega's going to interact with other chains, Cosmos is a whole set of chains which all have some similar pro properties and can integrate with each other, but they can bridge to Ethereum, they can bridge to other things, and we're early in bridging technology and bridges keep getting hacked, and so you know, right now we have not perfected this, but yeah, there's a lot of people working on that problem of actually saying we would be better off if everyone, you know, um, Polkadot and Parachain, similar thing as well, we'd be better off if people could build their own new version of this technology that was optimized for their needs. You know, Vega needs certain properties for trading. IPFS is a great example of a decentralized network that's not quite a blockchain but allows decentralized storage, which would be a terrible idea on something like Ethereum. Um, in terms of cost and, and efficiency. Um, so you get all these different decentralized networks that should eventually be able to work together. Uh, so it, it won't be as big a problem as it has been, say, for the internet, because people are sort of building this sort of infrastructure. But it, but it is also a problem. And even within something like Vega, at the point where um, you know, there's as many developers on Vega's core software as the Linux kernel and you know, many different users and many shards on the network and many nodes, like probably moving it will be committee-based and slow. So you, know, you, need to, you need to seed these things while there are a smaller team building them and while they're sort of nimble. Um, you need to seed them with the right like base properties to, for success because at a certain point it becomes harder and harder to innovate. So yeah, that, that is, a, is a concern. You, I think you see it with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin yeah. could do with having it being faster. Bitcoin could do with being able to do more stuff. You know, and ultimately, it's sort of semi-paralyzed. And 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 I mean I I I I mean I think the Vega project is absolutely incredible in terms of what what the potential is there in the markets that we've talked about with the opportunities and the whole cost and I also love and this always comes up when we have conversations the the democratization of whatever data from the early days of the internet to now with the Vega example democratization of, of finance there's loads of potential positives. Um, are, are there difficulties? I mean, are there basic difficulties in these markets? Is liquidity uh, a, a factor? Is it something that, that that's relevant? Is it is it an, an inhibitor in any way? Or yeah, I mean, liquidity is um, 
It's important, but it's it's in some ways less important than than some people might think. And what I mean by that is like, if there is demand, um, you will find liquidity. And actually, um, there are different levels of liquidity that are fine. You know, so if I would like to buy, you, know, you look at the AIM alternative investment market in London, and you look at some of those the order books for those stocks, they trade like once a week, and you, know, you want to sell some, you're probably going to move the price a lot or not even find someone on the other side of the book at all, and you're going to put your order there and wait. You know, um, I'm not sure actually that order book-based continuous markets like that are the best way to trade something that's that illiquid, although they, they work fine. I think you could use you know, quote-based systems or frequent batch auctions, which are things that Vega will also support. And the point is there's a big spectrum of liquidity, and you know, one of the interesting things about a... You know, creating a sort of shelling point like Vega or or even like a centralized exchange like the AIM is if people know there's a list of things and on that under that list of things are a bunch of orders of people who are interested in buying and selling, people will check that out occasionally and see what pe- those other people are doing and, and come up with the liquidity. So you know, if Vega is successful and has some some very liquid markets and is a place where people are trading in general, then when someone comes up with something weird that very few people want to trade and kind of puts a message out there effectively, into the ether saying, I'm interested in selling one of these and I would take anything above you know, $50 for it, um, some people will be looking at that and deciding whether they're willing to, to buy that for $50. You know? So um, mm. I think once you actually create a sort of a place where people go, the liquidity will, will, will begin to come uh, and you can, have way, you can find ways to incentivize that. And indeed, um, you know, centralized exchanges tend to work in you know, another sort of aspect of democratization and openness is around how things like liquidity works. Like if you're, if you're the London Stock Exchange, you probably do some deals with some big market makers that everyone else can't see when you want to launch new markets and new products uh, in order to get early liquidity. And then when the market takes off, you basically unceremoniously dump that market maker and stop paying them mm. um, and, and tell them to go fend for themselves. Um, and none of that's really visible to anyone trading. No one really knows what's going on there. Whereas yeah, with something like Vega, we actually have a protocol to incentivize the provision of liquidity on the platform. Uh, effectively, makes liquidity providers and market creators like owner operators of the market. So, it effectively, within the protocol rules, gives them some governance control and gives them a share of the fees. And you know, the way Vega works is is you know, again like all of these other systems. It's sort of these sort of fat protocols. So you've got this protocol that's technical where. Um, you know, people interact with this technical system, but alongside that interaction is the economic mechanism. And effectively, when you pay trading fees on Vega, they're distributed to all the people who provided value to give you a service. So if you took liquidity from Vega, you pay fees to the people you took liquidity from, you pay fees to the people who effectively operate the market and ensure it has liquidity, and you pay fees to the people who run the, the, the hardware and software. Um, what you don't do is pay me or a centralized team or a company. So all of the value stays within the network and, and is redistributed to the people who actually provided something useful. So, but I've got, I've got one other question for you, um, Bunny. The, the, I keep hearing about different things. So look, we, we've had a lot of discussions recently around market integrity or the integrity of centralized exchange platforms. And then some people they start to say, well, you know, DEX platforms are the future, so decentralized networks are the future because it's super fair, it's peer-to-peer pricing, um, there's, there's nothing in, in between, and that's how the price is going to be um, fairly developed between two participants in a, in, a, in, a, in a transaction. But then you hear about all these uh, minor and our maximum extractable values, or MEVs, um, that basically sounds a bit like um, 
front running or th there are the sort of sandwich techniques where the orders are sort of reworked to, for, for you know, specific purposes and, and the miners then can eff effectively extract value from, from those transactions. Is that something you see, or market integrity as a principle, is it something you see as a problem or is it something you've already considered? Or, for or sure. Well, um, market integrity is really important and, and fairness is a, a word we use yeah. a lot. And fairness is yeah. very important. Like, one of the important sort of, you know, when I mentioned earlier some of the sort of features that markets need to have for them to be serious, useful, real-world things, and very near the top of that list is, is a con some concept of fairness. And, you know, every exchange in the traditional world will basically tell you what it thinks fair is. So, you know, for yeah, instance, yeah, yeah, most yeah, order yeah. books have price-time priority, which means it is fair that if you have a better price, you go first, but it's also fair if you have the same price as me and you got there first, you go before me. Um, basically, what seems to have happened and what happened with you know, Ethereum and, and DEXs is the system was designed without thinking about this. Mm -hmm. The system is horrendously exploitable for, by front-running, by manipulation, by just generally treating the users like second-class citizens to the, the miners and people who can share this profit. And a whole bunch of people, instead of saying, this is bad, we should design a thing that doesn't do this, said, hey, well, it's probably unavoidable. We haven't thought about it for long, but what we're going to do is try and work out, like, we're trying to try and extract it and then, like, try and democratize sharing it. And so you end up with these, like, flashbots and MEV things where um, they're trying to maximize MEV and you know, probably also re-centralize things that should be decentralized in the process. But it just is the completely wrong solution in my eyes. Um, we're building trying to build infrastructure for finance. Finance is supposed to be fair. Let's try at least a little bit harder to design it to be fair. And you know, to their credit, there are now a bunch of people in the ecosystem thinking about this stuff, you know, thinking about, uh, I can't remember, propose or something separation. So effectively, mm -hmm. you know, you're proposing a block, you're not the one choosing it, so maybe you actually don't get to propose a block that's beneficial to you because no one will choose it if you do that. Um, things like uh, commit and reveal, so everyone encrypts their stuff and they only decrypt it once it's already definitely happened. Um, things like Vega, we've designed a protocol called Wendy, which is meant to provide order fairness um, you know, under certain parameters within the, the consensus layer itself. All of these things are, are the right approach. The right approach is to say, how close to perfectly fair can we make it? And you know, one of the interesting things is if you make the, the friction and cost of, of exploiting the unfairness that's left more expensive than the value of the exploit, no one will do it. And so you know, really you mm. can, should be designing the economic incentives and the technology hand in hand so that you have a system where 99.999% of the time, you know, some, some very high probability, it is more expensive to exploit the, the, the avenues for unfairness in the system than it is, uh, than you get if you do so. And if we, make, if we can make that happen, and it's the same argument of things like... Um, you know, staking and proof of stake and all these other things. If it's more expensive to exploit the system than it is to hold your tokens and stake them, then you won't bother exploiting it. You'll just mm. stake your tokens. So same sort of argument. And we really need, we will not succeed in replacing centralized exchanges with centralized finance if the basic system is, hey, this is unfair and there's sort of a bunch of cowboys and all trying to like exploit the unfairness, but don't worry, you can join one of the bunches of cowboys and exploit yeah. it with them and share the profits. Like, yeah. No one wants that. Like, It would be yeah. kind of crazy. Like, So... Uh, I think you know, really MEV is a concept that needs to be properly researched, needs to be a lot of investment and time needs to go into properly designing systems that do not suffer from it in a catastrophic way. And, and unfortunately, most of DeFi is not really there yet. But, but I think now people are, including you know, Vega very much so, but people in, in the ecosystem us. generally are now yeah. thinking, thinking very much about this and, and trying, trying to solve these problems properly. But it's taken a, a bit of a while with a 
very, very large detour in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's good view. to hear that it's on your radar. I mean, the, the market fairness, those, those points you made, that's, it is critical. Incredibly so, important. So. We, won't, we won't get anywhere. And also, we will, you will never, if you, if you want regulatory clarity, if you want acceptance by yeah, normal exactly. people, you're not going to get it when you start explaining to them how MEV works. And like, they, they will just be like, oh, what? why do you think this is a good idea? Like, yeah, why yeah, did you design this? Who yeah. are you? Like, yeah. You've got to kind of come to the table and go, our baseline is we're building a fair system. Barney, it's been super, super interesting. I mean, I've got to ask you many, many more questions, but uh, I won't take any more of your time today. It's been brilliant having you here. Thanks so much for, for coming down. And, and I think it's an awesome project. So we look forward to tracking the development as things continue to move forward. And you guys are doing a great job. So awesome, awesome stuff. Thanks, Joe. It's been great to be here. Thanks for watching Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. Please like and subscribe for more episodes.